0: Well, good morning. It's nice, to see, uh, it's nice to see you all this morning. We'll, uh, we'll give the parents and the children a chance to uh, get to the classrooms and get signed in. And as they're going, if you have your Bibles with you, then I would invite you to open them to Matthew, chapter 27, verse 62. We're going to start there and go all the way to chapter 28, verse 15. It's the story of the resurrection, and I will not point out that this just happens to be where we are in the text. Now, if, uh, if Friday is a day of grief and mourning, and it most certainly is, it's a day where we remember that our redemption came at the cost of the death of the Son of God, this day of mourning on Good Friday, gives way and gives way quickly to the day of rejoicing and celebration. In fact, the day of rejoicing and celebration for the Christian church, of which there can be no upper limit. is the resurrection. Christ rising victorious from the grave as we sang for the last four or five songs. This is a time of rejoicing if there ever was one. And then the, the whole event... The whole weekend, in a way, is a a picture of the Christian life. And we have trouble now, for a little while, followed by comfort everlasting. We have sorrow, as Paul tells us, for the night, but joy comes in the morning. We are beset by light and momentary afflictions here that give way to eternal glory. And for those first... Christians in the first century who saw Jesus die, the grief that was unimaginable quickly gave way to His coming and comforting them. So brothers and sisters, we we can take a lesson from this. God will come quickly for those who trust in Him. And He will never allow them to suffer, never allow us to suffer too long before He makes our joy complete. And as we recall the death of Christ on Friday, with equal or greater earnestness, we rejoice in the resurrection Sunday. So let's let's take a look at the account from Matthew's Gospel in chapter 27, verse 62. And if you're still turning there, I just want to We'll let you know our, our, our aim for this morning is we're going to show the importance of the resurrection and then turn to the text to see how a lie proves the resurrection. So see the importance of the resurrection in the Christian life and then look at the text to see how a lie uh, concocted up by the Sanhedrin and the guards proves the resurrection. So let's, let's look to the word. Matthew 27, starting in verse 62. The next day, that is after the Passover, or the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise, therefore... Order that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal away him and tell the people, He's risen from the dead, and this last fraud will be worse than the first. A pilot said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and they made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now, after the Sabbath... They came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guards went into the city. And they told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel together, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. And so they took the money as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews until this day. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand Your Word this morning, Lord. It's, it is not difficult, but our hearts are often so dull. And I pray, Lord, that You would glorify Your Son and glorify Yourself through what You have done in raising Him from the dead. And I pray that everyone who is here this morning, from whatever walk of life they come from, and no matter how they found themselves here this morning, that they would leave believing in the resurrection of Christ from the dead. I pray, Lord, that You would give us eyes to see what You have put on display in times past and hearts to believe what You have preserved for us in Your Word. Be with us this morning, Lord, in this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, a few things are as central to the Christian life as the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, I would, I would go so far as to say that the resurrection is even more significant than the cross. Without the resurrection, there would be no Christianity. But I'm not saying this is my opinion. Because if it was only my opinion, you wouldn't have any right or reason to be here listening to me. I think that the resurrection is more significant, if not the most significant event in Christianity, in the history of the world, because it is the clear teaching of the rest of the New Testament. Christianity is centered on the resurrection. In fact, do you know why we meet on Sundays? In a sense, every single Sunday morning when we meet together, we are celebrating the resurrection. But 1 Peter Consider some of these verses. 1 Peter 3.8 It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Right? If you're a born-again Christian, which is the only kind that the Scripture knows, there's no such thing as a Christian who is not born again. And if you are, the only reason is because Christ has been raised from the dead. Or Romans ten nine. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Right? Our faith, what we place our faith in, is centered not primarily on His dying, but on His being raised. Or Romans 8. Who is there to condemn Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. Here Paul says in Romans, the resurrection is why we are not condemned. Even more so than the death of Christ. The resurrection is more important than the sacrifice. In 1 Corinthians 15, if we, what we read this morning, If Jesus was not raised, then you are still in your sins. If Jesus was not raised, then above all people in the world we are most to be pitied. If Jesus was not raised, we are liars and make God out to be a liar. We have no hope apart from the resurrection. If Christ is not raised, we're not forgiven. If Christ is not raised, then every time we open up the book and speak about Christ reigning and ruling, every time we sing a song... We're not telling the truth if Christ is not raised. If Christ is not raised, there is no Christianity. And when Paul preaches the gospel to the Athenians, to the Gentiles in Acts 17, he calls those who hear him to believe. But he doesn't call them in the first instance to believe that Jesus is the son, though they'll believe it. And he doesn't call them in the first place to believe that Jesus died, though they have to if they believe what he calls them to believe, that Jesus was raised from the dead. And the resurrection is the focal point of Paul's gospel. And that should be obvious why, shouldn't it? The reason why the resurrection is so obviously the focal point is because in this world, people die every day. In fact, from the time you walk in here this morning till the time you leave, there are going to be 12,000 plus people dead in the world during that short span. 12,000. What's that? A, a seventh of the population of the city of Fredericton. From the time you walk in the door till the time you leave, we'll have departed from the earth. There's nothing unusual about people dying. Everyone dies Eventually. I need you to think about this. We just went through a pandemic. Death did not increase during the last two years. There's a war in Ukraine right now. War does not increase death. Death is final in every generation. The only thing that famines and plagues and wars do is speed things up just a little bit. But you know what doesn't happen? What doesn't happen for the many billions who've died, they don't come back to life again. There have been all kinds of people throughout history, all throughout the ages prophets and leaders and scholars and kings and theorists and whatever whatever kind of thinker, philosopher you want to name, all of them who have made all kinds of claims. Claims on people is what it means to be human. Claims of authority, claims of truth, claims on even the devotion of people. But in the end they died and they stayed dead. And some of their ideas were carried on by their by their followers, by those who really believed But as to their veracity, as to the truthfulness of everything they said, who can know? How can anyone know if what these influential leaders and people said was true or not? What could possibly prove it? Well, one way you could know for sure was if God himself authenticated the message. That's the only way you could know with certainty. An outside judge who knows the truth of all things says what this person has spoken is true. You can take it to the bank. You can trust everything they've said. A divine authentication. And I can't think of any better divine authentication than when the author of life and death raised Jesus from the grave. Just think about this. Let me give you an example. I want you to imagine a man down in Officer Square. And for three years, he's there in Officer Square. Some of you probably pass by there every day. He's there preaching. And he preaches all around the city and he preaches all around the province and he, he gains a great deal of fame. Gains a deal of, of notoriety. Newspapers start to write about him. He's... He's on the, on the 5 o'clock news. He's seen all over social media. And many people even hear about him in person, hear his message in person. They, they hear what he says and uh, it's quite radical. He claims that he's the son of God. He claims that not only everything he says is true, but that he is truth. And anyone who disagrees with his unpopular message is a liar. Imagine he said that the way most people live their lives is wrong and they have to repent. The way they think is immoral and God himself is going to hold them to account unless they turn and trust in him and that God would destroy them in hell forever. Radical claims. And then he made the most outlandish claim of all. But out of everything I've said and all of it is true... I can save you from the judgment and from death and from hell because that's why I'm here. That's why I came. All of those terrible things I said God is going to judge and, 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 and do if you trust me. None of it's going to happen to you if you believe me. It's all you have to do. Believe in me, who I, who I am, I, who I say I am, and what I've done. Well, can you imagine if that happened? Not 2,000 years ago, a couple of days ago in Officer Square. It would be very difficult to believe it, wouldn't it? It's no wonder that C.S. Lewis, when he was writing about Jesus and the claims that Jesus made, he said there's only three possibilities. He said either he is, is a liar and he knows it and everything that comes out of his mouth is untrue. Either he's a madman who can't even make the distinction between what is real and what is false. To make such outlandish claims or he is who he claims to be. He is the Lord. It would be very difficult to take the claims of someone like that seriously if they're making claims so exalted. Certainly if this was happening, it would rile up a lot of people. He would have some enemies. They'd get angry at him. They would debate with him. They might even fight him because of what he said. No one would doubt that. They might even want to kill him on account of his claims. So, given that this man has some enemies, I want you to imagine that one evening you turn on the news or you log in or you do whatever you do to uh, find out about what's going on in the world. And you see front page news, live feed, that this so-called prophet has been captured by a well-armed group of enemies. And it's a a hostage situation right there in downtown Fredericton. Cameras rolling 24 7. One of the leaders comes out, one of his enemies, and they say plainly, Our intent is to kill this man for all of the things that he's saying, and we want everyone to see. We want it to be well known. We don't want anyone to think this is some kind of trick. And so they tie the man's hands behind his back, and they march him out into the open in front of the cameras, and they shoot him dead. People from the nearby office buildings, they look down, they see there's a shelter in place, and the man lays there for the next five hours as the standoff continues. After five hours, the hostage takers are themselves killed or arrested. The whole while, the cameras are fixed on the dead man, whole time, and he is dead. The coroner comes after, pronounces him dead, dead when he was shot, dead for the last five hours, and then the body is identified and he is taken away, buried, and that's that. The few people who believed what he said are going to be shaken and very disturbed, but ultimately they're going to be defeated. And even though some would mourn and some would respect him and even love him, very few now would take what he said very seriously. He's dead. It's over. So imagine after a few days, after this event that was broadcast all around the world, had the world's attention wrapped for hours, headline after headline reading, Dead. After all of that, you go downtown into your office or you're driving through wherever you go, and you hear something, you roll down your window and you look. And there he is preaching in officer square. The same man who three days earlier you watched die. What are you going to do with this message now? Well, I'll tell you what you're going to do. The first thing you're going to do is probably shake in your boots. You're, you're going to say to yourself, I saw him die. And then you're going to try to remember everything you heard him say. You're going to mark it down so that you never forget. And then you're going to believe what this man is saying. I mean, he was dead and now he's alive. Who can do this but God? God Himself has stamped His approval on His message. You're going to say, I had better pay close attention and hear and do everything this man is telling me now. Or at least, that's how any reasonable, rational person would respond. If a dead man came back from the grave and was preaching. I mean, you can argue with an argument. You can argue with an argument. And and you can argue with a person. You could argue with me. And you could argue and disagree about a lot of different things. But you can't argue with the resurrection. That's beyond your ability to debate. You can't argue with the man coming back from the dead. You can believe it, or you can... Deny it. Stick your head in the sand and pretend it didn't happen. But you can't argue with the risen Christ. You cannot prove Jesus wrong when God, through the resurrection, has proved Him right. God the Father, one of the things we remember on this day is the vindication of God the Son this first Easter morning. And that the message He proclaimed to all of the people, God did Through the resurrection is this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And so the resurrection, it tells everyone who hears about it that they should repent and believe. It calls those who believe to follow in the footsteps of Christ. It commands them to obey the teaching of Christ. It binds all people to his word and proves without question that he is true. Whatever he said will come to pass and we owe him our adoration it compels everyone who hears about the resurrection it compels them to put their faith and trust in him or at least it should not everyone responds to the resurrection this way do they some believe some mock some want to hear more some are indifferent some are skeptical some ridicule some refuse Some try to rationalize it away. Some even become hostile when they hear about it. Because they know precisely what it means. If this man is raised from the dead, then I have to listen to everything he said. And so people put up walls of denial to ward off the truth. In fact, it's not just some who respond to the resurrection this way. Unfortunately, it's most... In fact, it's exactly what happened in our passage this morning. The guards and those who sent them with the resurrection right in front of them. They had a front row seat. They're some of the first people who knew that it happened. They deny it and they lie about it. Hendrickson, in his commentary, he gives an outline. He says, This is the the guards stationed, scattered, and bribed. And then he focuses in on the guards and how how what happens in their short story proves the resurrection. It starts in verse 62. And in verse 62, they're stationed. They're stationed at the tomb at the request of the Pharisees. So the Pharisees, that's the religious leaders of the day, they come to Pilate religious leaders in Jerusalem and they asked him for a detachment of soldiers. They want some trained and capable men to guard the tomb. But this is a, a strange request, isn't it? Because they don't want these men to come and guard a captured zealot, one of the terrorists in ancient Israel. And they don't want them to come and guard the leader of a of a rebellion. Right? Like sometimes you see a a drug lord imprisoned and he's guarded. Why? Because they're going to come and break him out so he can continue to lead. Or he's not a murderer or a dangerous criminal. No, they want these professional men to come and stand watch for three days over a corpse. Over someone who is dead. I mean, can you imagine? In all of history, except maybe for this occasion... When was a detachment of security given for someone who was buried in the grave? Already, this begins to look absurd. But they're asking out of fear, the Sanhedrin. They, they know what Jesus said. They remind Pilate what Jesus said. They tell him, this imposter, he said in three days he's going to come back. Well, we aren't taking any chances. We want the tomb sealed and soldiers sent. Otherwise, what will happen if His disciples come and they steal the body away? I mean, the end will be worse than the beginning. It was unlikely ever to happen, of course. The disciples had fled in terror and were totally demoralized, both of their own failure to stay with Him and by the death of the Lord. There was no threat for Him. That was the least thing, the last thing on the disciples' minds. You never read even of an inkling of them thinking to going to the tomb. They're done. But the Sanhedrin, out of fear, they want to take every precaution. They want to do everything they could. They remembered that Jesus said in three days he would rise. The disciples don't remember, but they do. And so they asked Pilate for a guard. It's, it's debatable what Pilate answered when he told them, You have a guard? Did he mean that he would provide a guard for them or they should use some of their own men from the temple? It could be either, more, more likely because of verse twenty-eight, fourteen, These were Pilate's men. In the end, it really doesn't matter. What matters is that the tomb was made as secure as humanly possible, and it was made secure by the enemies of the Lord, by the enemies of Jesus. Pilate has given them permission. And so rejoicing that their plan's been accepted, they go to the tomb, they do everything they can. They, they have the tomb sealed with, with wax all around the stone so it can't be broken. They put the imperial insignia on it. Warning of the Roman wrath that will fall on anyone who dares to break that seal. Then there's the stone, large and heavy, that uh, very few men could contend with. And lastly, they send the soldiers, trained for war, well-armed, guarding the grave. If anyone tampers with this stone, lays a hand on it, not only will they know... But they will probably lose their life. The tomb has been made totally secure. Now, does God have any reason for this? Why why would this happen? You know, you you read in Matthew, God, you're, you're doing something here. Why have you planned to have all of these guards here and the tomb sealed? Well, what does this action of the Pharisees ensure? Who is the first witness of the resurrection? If you say the women who went to the tomb, you'd be wrong. It's not the women. Now if you say, well, is it the disciples? No, it's not the disciples either. The first people who witness the resurrection are His enemies. Those who were sent to prevent the stone from moving, who were sent to keep Jesus confined in the grave, will be the first to witness the resurrection. And here's how they witness it. In chapter 28, verse 2, another earthquake happens, but we're told this time it's the result of an angel of the Lord coming down. And the ground shakes. And not only does the ground shake, but the guards shake. Right? The angel comes, we're told, in the appearance of a man, but with his clothes as white as as white can be and shining like lightning. It's terrifying to see. And and so you you get the picture. The soldiers are standing guard. All of a sudden they feel a trembling. Out of nowhere, a bright and shining light blinding to the eyes begins to descend. And then ignoring the guards, it takes hold of the tomb of the stone with both hands and throws it aside and sits down upon it victoriously like a conquered foe. So the soldiers start to run. And those who don't run, the only reason why they don't run is because they've collapsed unconscious like men who are dead. The stone... The seal, the guards, all of it is dispatched in an instant. All of those things that made the Pharisees feel so secure offered no security at all. They don't stop the plan of God. They could not stop the resurrection or delay it even for a single moment. When God said, rise, Jesus rose. And it didn't matter however many obstacles was put in his place. This is a good reminder to all of us of the ability of God to carry out everything he said. This is good news because it means every promise he made to his people will inevitably come to pass. I mean, if all the world were to work together to condemn a single Christian and keep them dead in the grave, it would be no match For the voice of God when it called them to come forth. Every effort against the Lord and all of the plans of men come to ruin. Just like what happened here. The elders, the Pharisees, their plans, the chief priests, they fall apart. They hear about it from some of the guards. They rush to the Sanhedrin to give them the report, even to warn them about what happened. And you see it was only some of the guards... Some, no doubt, lay unconscious a little while longer. Some scattered and ran away. But at least a few who were stationed there come and they report to the high priest what happened. They told them of the, of the sudden descent and the flaming angel. They told them about the ground shaking under their feet and their comrades in arms collapsing in fear and the seal being broken and the stone rolled away and the tomb being empty. They know the body isn't there. the chief priests are beside themselves. They know what happened. They call a meeting. They they gather all the elders and the leaders together. They're wondering, what what are we going to do? This is our worst fear coming true. We went to great lengths to stop this worst case scenario from happening, and now it's happening. But they have a plan. Listen to this. They have just been proven wrong. In fact, they could not be more wrong than they are right now in this moment. They have just discovered, without a doubt, these Pharisees, these religious leaders, that they have spurned and rejected and condemned the very Son of God. Despite all of their effort to discredit Christ... Despite all of their effort to humiliate Him, to thwart Him, and to kill Him, all of their effort to keep the disciples away so they couldn't steal the body and deceive the people, they failed and come to nothing. And not because the disciples broke in and overpowered the guards and took the body like they feared would happen, but because God Himself looked down from the heavens and laughed. He said, their pitiful plans that He looked on with derision have come to nothing. Nothing. And just like Psalm 2 says, He has set His King on His holy hill. Now the chief priests, without any doubt, they know what's going on here. They, they know where the battle lines are drawn. They know whose side is on whose. Now they know who they're fighting against. They are waging war against God Himself. If there was doubt before, there's no doubt now. God has raised Jesus from the dead. So what do they do? I mean, you get to this point, you know, the guards come and they tell the, the Sanhedrin, "Hey, Jesus is risen." You, you, you may expect to read that they believed, <laughs> that they may be grieved over their sins because they put the Son of God to death. You read it and you think, now will they ask the Lord for forgiveness? Now will they believe all of the things He sold them? He's told them. Now will they believe, seeing how the very Maker of heaven and earth has raised Him from the dead? Are they going to tremble and bow down now or or feel ashamed because of what they've done and that they struck down the Messiah? How are they going to respond now, now that without a doubt they are struggling against the Lord of glory? Well, upon making the dreadful discovery, they decide the best thing for them to do Is to pay the soldiers off and cover for them so that they're not going to get in trouble if Pilate finds out. That's what they do. You know, it was customary in the ancient world if a Roman soldier allowed a prisoner to escape, they would suffer the same fate. This would mean if they allowed Jesus to escape, even though he was dead, they would be crucified or put in the tomb. That's what would happen to a Roman soldier who allowed their prisoner to escape no matter what the condition of the prisoner was. That's why the Pharisees say they'll cover for them if it gets back to the governor. And that's what they do. That's how hard-hearted they are. That's how recalcitrant they are. How hostile to God they've become. They bribe the guards so that they'll lie and spread the story. Ah, we were negligent. We fell asleep. Oh, can you blame us? We were guarding a dead man. And while we slept, the disciples came and they stole the body. You know what we don't read? You want to know the extent of the hardness of these people's hearts? Just how, how opposed to Christ they really were? We don't read that the chief priests and elders doubted, even for a moment. We don't read that they rejected the story of the angel descending and the stone being rolled away and said it can't be true. We don't read that they were in utter disbelief they believed the soldiers. They believed that Jesus rose from the grave. They believed that He was God's Son, or they did now, and they hated to be wrong. In fact, they hated so much to be wrong, and they hated so much to be embarrassed that even though the resurrection was proven indisputably with unarguable clarity, and even though they believed it happened, they would not believe in Christ. They hated Him. In the heart on display in this moment is a heart that says if they could, they would crucify Him again. Like so many today, they would rather die, they would rather lie, they would rather deny than believe. And that lie began on the first Easter Sunday and has persisted even until now. Sometimes you still hear it. That the disciples are the ones who took the body and hid it away. But we know what happened. And we know why Matthew Records this account in his gospel. It's only in Matthew's gospel, it's not in Mark or Luke or John. You know why? Because this rumor was spread amongst the Jews, and Matthew was writing to the Jews. And the thing about this lie that the disciples came and stole the body is it is so ridiculous that it actually proves the resurrection. You say, What do you mean? How how does how if anything that would discredit it, right? How does it prove the resurrection? Well, imagine Monday morning. So it's a day after this monumental event where Jesus rises from the grave. It's in Jerusalem. First century. Jerusalem. Day after the resurrection. Word on the street, the body was stolen. Rumors already begun to penetrate the masses of Jerusalem. So one of the guards, he's stopped by a friend who who knows he was there. He heard when he got called up for guard duty at the tomb and, and the friend asked him, Hey, what's this I've heard about a resurrection? What's this I've heard about Jesus' tomb being empty? Now the soldier answers, Well, let me tell you what happened. It was this. The disciples came while we were sleeping. They came during the night, and they stole the body away. Oh, says the friend, and and he's satisfied. That's a good enough answer for him. He continues on his way, tells some of his friends, the rumor spreads. A little further on down the road, the guard meets somebody else who asks him the same question. He gives the same answer. The disciples came during the night and stole his body while we were asleep. This man's not so simple as the first. He's not satisfied with the answer. He he looks at the soldier in disbelief. His jaw begins to to drop. He says, you you mean to tell me that you twelve men, or however many of you there were, trained and armed... "...trained as sentinels and as guards in the most effective fighting force in the world, you slept while some Galilean fishermen sneaked in, rolled away the stone, turned it on its side with a tremendous crash, and then grabbed the body and scurried away. You expect me to believe that none of you even so much as blinked? No, this is going on. You must be some sound sleepers indeed." Now the soldier's nervous now. A third person enters the conversation. What kind of guards are you that you fell asleep? I know for a fact, he says, that any Roman guard who falls asleep on duty will lose his life. And yet here you are, alive and well. And not only alive and well, but you're telling everyone about your capital offense? Something seems wrong here. Some things aren't lining up. I don't believe you're that ignorant to be boasting about what should be your death sentence, you must be lying. Well, the soldier covers for himself. He, he stammers. He tries to justify. He says, yes, yes, but the governor didn't want this Jesus movement to get out of hand and so he, he permitted us to live so we could tell what happened. And a fourth person who's been watching, he begins to question the, the guard. Yeah, he's been listening. He's been taking in the conversation. He sees an even greater problem. He asked him, Would you mind, just, just so I understand, Would you mind repeating everything that happened once more? He says, I've told you. The disciples came at night. We were all asleep. And they took the body of Jesus. You expect me to believe that, the fourth man says? Oh, you betray yourself. You, you said by your own admission that you and everyone with you were deeply asleep. Sleeping so soundly that the disciples were able to come, empty the tomb without the slightest opposition at all. So just to make sure I've got that right, you and everyone who with you, who should have been guarding, were sleeping so soundly. You didn't hear a thing. Yes. So if you couldn't hear the grinding of the stone being moved because you were asleep, and you didn't hear it tip over to the ground because you were asleep if mean, the crash as it landed. And if you didn't hear the clamor of the disciples as they dashed off with the body, if you slept through all of that, then how in the world could you possibly know what happened? If you were sleeping like you say, and you didn't see anyone enter the garden, and you didn't see anyone open the tomb. And you didn't see anyone carry the body out. If what you say is true, that you were asleep, you didn't see anything at all. Be the only rational, logical response to a guard who said, well, he was sleeping, the disciples came and stole the body away. It, it wouldn't be reliable at all, would it? Because he, if what he said is true, we were all asleep, he couldn't possibly know. And so you see, Matthew includes the story because the rumor itself puts the rumor to death. No one stole the body of the Lord Jesus. It happened just as he said. In the same way, every opposition, every so-called solution to the problem of the empty tomb, apart from the resurrection, it falls apart just like this. Oh, Jesus wasn't really dead. He was crucified and speared and buried for three days. He was dead. The disciples stole the body. Well, that's defeated in its face. Now, there's only one possible explanation for the empty tomb on Easter morning. Jesus Christ, by the power of God, rose from the grave. And because He did, He is who He says He was. Heaven itself confirms it, and every exalted claim that Jesus Christ made about himself is true. Everything he said about heaven is true. Everything he claimed about hell is true. And every claim he made on you is true. It's binding, and it requires an accounting. Because you can argue with a book, and you can argue with a person, and you can argue with an argument. But you can not argue with the resurrection. It's like the sun comes up in the morning. It's there. You can believe it or you can reject it in some kind of self-denial. But you can't seriously debate the sun is not in the sky. You can't say with any credibility it's not there. If you're a Christian here this morning and I'm sure many of you are, You can take great confidence in the fact that Jesus did, in fact, rise from the grave. And because He rose, you will rise. Your own resurrection to life is as sure as His resurrection was because you died and were buried and live in Him. It's like you're attached to Him with an unbreakable golden chain. And wherever He goes, you will go. You will be with Him where He is. But if you're not a Christian... You've been given every reason why you should believe. It's rational. You think the resurrection is far-fetched. Nobody comes back from the grave. That's not a justification for the denial. That proves it. That's the argument and the point that the Bible makes. People don't come back from the grave. Resurrection does not happen. In fact, in the last thousand years, in the last... 1,990 years, no one's come back from the grave except for Jesus. That's the point. Because if someone does come back from the grave, given that so many die and stay there, that's like a, a, a blazing siren and a trumpet blast saying, pay attention. Something unusual, something supernatural is happening here that you ought to be paying attention to. The resurrection The the fact that people don't come back from the dead doesn't, doesn't nullify the resurrection. It proves it. It's a very argument Scripture makes. God did bring Jesus back from the grave. And because Jesus was brought back where so many billion others did not, we can believe what He said with confidence. It's rational to believe if Jesus rose from the grave. And it's reasonable to believe it What, with hell as the alternative? Is it not in your best interest to secure a place in heaven? It's for your good. It's the right thing to do. Lay it out before you. You have heaven on one hand and eternal life, hell and eternal death on the other. Which is reasonable for you? Which is the best decision to make moving forward? No, it's reasonable. It's for your good. It's the right thing to do. If Only for your self-preservation. This you know. it's not reason that stands in your way and it's not that you're too rational my concern is what prevents people is hardness of heart like the Pharisees and what was said of them might be true of you it says even if a man were to come back from the dead they would not believe oh don't be like them confess Christ as Lord that's why he came you don't have to die in your sins. You can be forgiven and live forever with Him. You say, my heart's too hard. Well, then confess your hard heart to Christ and ask Him to soften it. When you say, well, it's, it's too dull to care, I don't even care. Well, then confess your dullness to Christ and ask Him to sharpen it. The Lord is willing to forgive and to save. He delights to. It's why He came, it's why He died, it's why He rose. It's why we sing and what we celebrate today and we'll celebrate forever. The risen Christ is both Savior and Lord. And so if you hear His voice this morning, if you see the truth of His resurrection, of His death, burial, and rising from the grave for your sins, to cover them, to bring you to Him, do not harden your heart, but see the proof that God has given. See Christ in His resurrection and believe. Let's pray. Lord, You delight to forgive and to save. You have given us every reason to believe. Lord, You look down from heaven and call people to repent and believe, to turn from sin and believe in You. You've sent Your Son so that they could do so. You've raised Him from the dead to prove it. The angels in heaven call out to believe. Your Word commands people to believe. You put churches and and people all around to call others to come to You. You delight to forgive. You've warned of the danger of neglecting so great a salvation. Lord, we have so many... Comforts and promises and assurances that it is true. Lord, what a comfort to your people who believe. Jesus Christ has risen from the grave. Lord, I pray that it would be a comfort to everyone in this room. That no one would look on it as as a kind of fantasy or historical myth. Jesus really did die. And he really did rise again. And I pray, Lord, that you would give people ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to believe. That we would see and love the risen Christ. You have given us every reason to believe you and not a single one to deny it. Thank you, Lord, for your great and many promises and proofs. Thank you, Lord, that we can celebrate together that Jesus Christ is risen indeed. Amen.